0: Ryan Miller, and for the past 15 years have helped hundreds of people to raise millions of dollars for their funds and for their startups. If you're serious about raising money, launching your business, or taking your life to the next level, this show will give you the answers so that you too can enjoy your pursuit of making billions. Let's get into it. When launching a company or investing in one, it's easy to get carried away by the next cool thing that's going to light your consumers with delight. But did you know that all of that can go up in flames if you don't have the right legal work in place? So getting legal foundations in place while delighting your investors are all critical skills we need in our pursuit of making billions. Let's get into it. Hey, welcome to another episode of Making Billions. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and today I have my dear friend, David Siegel. David is a partner at Grellis Shaw. His law practice is focused on supporting entrepreneurs from pre-seed to pre-IPO. David has advised startups in raising well in excess of a billion dollars dollars in funding. He has written or appeared in outlets, including Entrepreneur, CFO Magazine, and more. So what this means is David is the guy you call to help you with contracts, compliance, and term sheets for your startup. So David, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so
1: much for having me. I'm very glad to have gotten acquainted with your podcast. You know, I'm, I'm kind of in a bubble in the world that I live in. I get to talk to a lot of founders. I get to a lot, talk to a lot of pure tech investors. Not only do I get to hear a different perspective, but I, I get to hear about people investing in all sorts of things that are just not pure tech world. So I, I learn a lot and that's one of my favorite parts of my job. So it's nice to have outlets outside of my job for that as well. So thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, it's good to have you. You know, I've been impressed with everything you've done and and all the work that you've put in and building your career and supporting entrepreneurs from the beginning almost to the exit. So this is yeah. good. We're going we're gonna to get into a lot of good stuff. But before we do, maybe you can walk us through like, how did you get started in this industry? How did you become an expert in contracts and all things startup on, on the legal side?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I've been practicing law for 20 years. You know, I graduated, I was in New York, I graduated NYU law school and startup world was not where I thought I was going. And it's not where I went. I thought I wanted to be a litigator and be in court all the time. So I went to a Big international law firm and worked for several years on big teams on you know multi-billion dollar litigation cases that you know types of things that were in the news, which was which was exciting and challenging, but not quite the fit for me. I, I kind of learned two things about myself. One, I want to help people build things, which is not what litigators do. That's not a knock on litigators. They do something very important, but they're not building up, they're protecting and, and the like, they're fighting. And the other thing is, as a person, my my role that I like to have with people is kind of people call me conciliere. I'm I'm somebody's trusted advisor. I am on calls very frequently at nine, 10 o'clock at night because clients call me to talk about whatever is on their mind. And that's not a litigator role. That's a corporate role. And the other thing is technology. I've always been working in IP. So technology is always of interest to me. So it's kind of a natural fit. So I moved out to California. I found the firm that I'm at now and I've been working here for 12 years already and have had a great opportunity to work with largely with founders and entrepreneurs, but also with investors, helping them grow companies. And been a, a wild ride and a, a changing ride over time of course as i'm sure you can imagine
0: man well yeah what a wild ride So, 20 years 12 years at this current firm you've been busy so now that you've been there and your practice has been built up and you build a pretty impressive background and reputation for yourself maybe you can walk us through you know some some of the good stuff that you're up to today and some of the people that you felt
1: one thing i've learned over the years is in the legal world change is not quick lawyers aren't often open to change so there are very few people who are good at the transition from say being a litigator to being a more of a corporate person and I was fortunate enough to be able to make that change, but it's really helped me in terms of helping clients that, Corporate lawyers don't typically know, they they structure transactions, they write contracts, they negotiate contracts, but they don't know what happens to this stuff later. That's when the litigator comes in. That's something that I know, cause I've done it. And I was thinking pretty recently, you know, I do a lot of M&A work and I negotiate M&A transactions and that's at the LOI term sheet level, like the high level negotiating. And it's also the 100 page merger agreements, you know, making sure everything is the way the client wants it. And it's something that a lot of people don't focus on, but pretty recently I had a transaction. We actually took over post term sheet. They moved over from another firm, which which happens. I was dealing with a dominant founder at the time, and he was concerned about a very particular issue, which is a real issue about liability. You know, if you're a private company selling off to uh, a buyer, you know, you're going to be making reps and warranties and indemnifying the buyer for all sorts of things. And this founder had a friend who got screwed because they had. Post-acquisition, the seller, the buyer, excuse me, got sued for patent infringement because of something to do with the seller's IP. It was not a meritorious case. The buyer litigated the case. One, something like $11 million in legal fees were spent by the buyer. And the seller stockholders had to pay that $11 million in legal fees, even though in reality the seller's IP didn't infringe mm. and they tried to negotiate in my client, tried to negotiate this away that right away at the term sheet phase and got shot down. But the reality is, and I've noticed this since then over and over, a lot of corporate lawyers, big firm corporate lawyers don't understand indemnification provisions and how the actual words are interpreted. I was able to make literally a two-word change in the merger agreement. The buyer always drafts. It went over. Nobody noticed it because they don't know what these words really mean in court. Solve the whole problem. Never debated again. Now, it hasn't been that long. I don't know if this client's buyer will get sued, but this client is protected. And I'm telling you, that's millions and millions of dollars that you can save.
0: Wow, that is phenomenal. So, you, you know, you remind me of the old schoolyard chant, sticks and stones break my bones the words can never hurt me. But in this case, with David on the case, the wrong words can hurt you, but the right words can certainly save you. like two word change. That is the world that we that we live in. And so whether you're a startup or a fund manager, your contracts matter. And I would argue lightly that not only do contracts, not only do contracts matter, but the person that you're seeking to work with to write those contracts matter. And so working with David or anyone in this industry, it's, I know a lot of people are like, well, I don't know, my, my brother's a uh, family law or something like that. No, 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 no. Don't do that. I know when you're entrepreneurs, you're starting out, if you're an emerging fund manager, you want to save money, don't save it here. Save it somewhere else. Work with somebody. I'm not saying, you know, spend all your money on legal, but I am saying don't cheap out because you can. Get what you pay for, and so with David, who's built a phenomenal reputation in this industry, working with founders, you know, working with him can actually save your behind. Now, I'm not saying this isn't an infomercial. I'm just drawing, (laughs) just drawing the illusion here that it's important to work with people who are competent, who know this industry, and in fact know exactly, like you said, these little wordings, these two word things. I know what those mean in court. These are very subtle, but very kind of it's an ace up a sleeve, and I know what will protect my clients. This is what I'm hearing. So, working with you can certainly save a lot of problems for you but also your investors. Would you agree? I fully agree with that.
1: When you're looking for legal help, I, I agree. I don't go to someone who does everything. There are people who specialize in these areas and that's that's who you need. You need people who know the issues and know the market as Perfect. well. You know, from an entrepreneur perspective, I hate to say it, you don't want to go to the lawyers who represent your investors mm. because you're a small, I hate to say it at the beginning, you're a small fry. You're not their billables. The investors are. The investors are repeat business. And there are subtle ways in which that will impact the advice you get. From an investor perspective, active. You know, I say the opposite. You get your clause into a company, try to get them to go to a firm that you have a good relationship with. They're, the lawyers are not going to screw the company, but it'll be, you know, in little ways, at least in your favor. And, and a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs will listen if you tell them, hey, you know, go to this great law firm. It doesn't have to be the exact law firm you yeah. used for, you know, the deal.
0: Okay. So if you're a founder, get your own counsel. If you're an investor on the other side of the transaction, try to fold them in and use your counsel where you have a relationship. Thank you for providing both the sides of that same coin. I really appreciate <laughs> right. it, Right. And again, it's not because there's anything illegal or shady going on. We're just saying relationships-wise, relationships matter. On this show, we understand reputation relationships really do matter. And so leveraging your relationships on your deals, that matters as well, or separating from other things. So I think David is giving us just a perspective from someone in the business of saying, depending on who you are, here's a good strategy. And that's why people like yourself and many of our listeners have come. Now, you mentioned that you deal with a lot of people from pre-seed to pre-IPO. When it comes to, say, pre-seed to A, I know convertibles are a pretty important vehicle in completing that deal. So on a pre-seed to A-ish range, convertibles, maybe you can walk us through just the basic stuff. What are convertibles and why should investors in early stages consider using them? Yeah. And a lot of this is
1: an alignment between founders and investors, the use of convertibles. So there are different instruments, the two big ones being convertible notes and, and something called safes that are used so that invest can, frankly, just quickly put money into a company without a lot of legal fees and without a lot of negotiation. The idea being that a full-on Series A equity round involves a lot of legal documentation, a lot of terms that have to be negotiated. And by using these convertible instruments, money's put into the company with a promise to convert it into equity later, and you defer those negotiations until, say, Series A or whatever it happens to be. With a convertible note, which used to be more traditional, but is, I wouldn't say fallen out of favor, but it's not as common, at least in major tech areas. It's, it's a note. It's its debt that investor will hold in the company. It has interest, it has a maturity date, but it has a feature where under certain circumstances it will convert into equity based on some sort of formula. A safe is actually much simpler. There's no debt, there's no interest, there's no maturity. It's just an agreement to convert into equity at the next equity round based on some sort of formula. Of course, the devil's in the details and this is where investors and founders will diverge in interest. And and some of this is really kind of tradition because these documents can be varied in infinite ways, right? But the typical safe nowadays is referred to as a post money safe and without getting into the complications of it basically its feature is that all of the dilution that is experienced by raising more and more safes until a conversion round falls on the founders. Mm. While a typical convertible note or the older pre-money safes that exist, that dilution is shared. So if you're an investor, if you're going to do a safe, go to the YC website, pull off a post-money valuation cap safe or valuation cap and discount safe and use that. And that's going to give you a lot of protection. If you're a founder and you have the negotiating leverage, try to get a pre-money safe. Convertible notes have pluses and minuses for founders and and investors. They can be more beneficial to investors. Of course, they could be written in that post-money way. It's just not traditional. It's odd that there are just these standards Standards that have developed in the tech ecosystem, it can be somewhat hard to get around them. But if you're a founder and you're stuck with a post-money safe, it's really okay. The big thing I would say for founders dealing with post-money safes is when you think about the valuation cap, there's a valuation on these safes usually, and that's the way it's determined how it'll convert. Don't get stuck talking about what you think the company is worth now at the moment you're raising the safe. You're, you want to talk about the projected valuation at the time the safe will convert. That is what can protect you from some of the dilution. Of course, if you're an investor, don't fall for that argument.
0: Got it. Thank you for that. That's brilliantly said. So why would you say control should be the primary focus at this stage? So
1: taking a step back. Stay with us. We'll be right back. AI is changing the game of business. Will you be on the winning team? I'm Jordan Wilson, the host of the Everyday AI podcast, and your coach to help you learn the X's and O's of AI. Artificial intelligence isn't just a new player in the game, it's a new sport altogether. So, if you don't quickly put AI into play, your competitors will run up the score. I've spent my whole life building winning teams, from coaching basketball to working with big players like Nike and Jordan Brand. My next move? helping you win with Everyday AI. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or on everydayaipodcast.com. Let's tap into AI together and put points on the board. When I look at the negotiations between an entrepreneur and a VC, the VC has an advantage of being a repeat player in the way the entrepreneur often isn't. VCs negotiate deals all the time. So they have a lot of familiarity and the and the founder doesn't. And then the VC has the money. So that's automatic negotiating leverage. So there's a tendency for founders in, in in the ecosystem to encourage founders to kind of negotiate against themselves from day one. So you set up a company with no protections for the founders and VCs in these simple incorporation documents, even from the largest law firm you spend $1,000 or more an hour on partners at the and you're getting the most simple documents that you can get off of some online resource. And then you do a VC round and suddenly you have these larded up corporate documents with dozens and dozens and dozens of pages of protections for your investor. You don't, it doesn't have to be that way. You can set things in place. You have control at the beginning. So set the stage at the very beginning when you can to at a minimum signal to your investors that you care about this. And one simple thing that founders can do, or at least consider, Not every. it's not for every founder, but you can create two classes at least of common stock at the beginning. Create a super voting class, say. The message in the industry is don't do that. Investors will make you get rid of it. So who cares? That's no extra money or time to do that. And the reality is, at a minimum, at an absolute minimum, you're forcing your investor when you're negotiating to ask you to do something. Mm. And whenever they ask you to do something, you can ask for something. Maybe you won't get it, but it really has worked. I've seen it survive VC rounds quite a number of times, and there are arguments to make that that work. But also just negotiating for something else. I had a client a couple of years ago whose company has since been sold off, but they negotiated what they wanted is the ability to force the investors to go along with any sale if the investors get a 3x return. Mm. They didn't know if they were going to shoot the moon or not and they were getting very prominent investors and they didn't want to get stuck. And the investors went along with this. Get rid of class B, we'll give you this. We'll give you this thing. That is not a standard get. And it worked out. They had like a Forex return on their sale. It was not a shoot the moon company. It just didn't go that way. And so they were able to take advantage of it. At the beginning, when you have the ability to set things up any way you want, at least try, at least consider trying. Don't pre-negotiate the simplest thing in the world to make yourself the most attractive company for a VC, particularly because attractive for a VC in this sense is just giving up everything on day one. Yeah.
0: well said, my man. So just making sure that those documents are in place. I like what you said of saying, make them ask you, because that is also an opportunity if they ask you. You get an ask and so having those super voting shares that you alluded to or some type of way of just saying how do we maintain control for as long as possible if not indefinitely but a lot of these things whether you force on a sale at a certain rate or any other issue when you're in the early stage don't just think about who gets what as far as profits or participation sometimes we call but also the control and so covering both the participation rights and the control are a great place to start brilliantly said moving forward not everybody's in pre-seed to series A. Some people are in their growth phase or series B, series C, around that range. So now we're going to talk about a little bit of the opposite of a little bit of losing control, particularly on the board. So a lot of times you start to see some interesting things start to trickle in around the board at this phase in a company. When they're in growth phase, there's a lot of change going on, emotions, egos, there's all kinds of stuff. I just This is real talk. And so in that time, if you're a founder or an investor in a company like this, probably have a board, which very fundamentally is just a bunch of people that represent the shareholders, uh, or at least they should be. And what does that mean when you're at this phase, whether you know, you're know you in a fund, a startup or any company, what does it mean to lose board control at this phase? And how can startup companies maintain control while still pleasing their investors?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is one of those areas where it's treated, I mean, it is a zero sum game, but you can be somewhat more creative about how to give everybody some of what they want. From the founder perspective, yes, as soon as you start having real investors in equity rounds, you're investing are going to want, most likely want board representation. For a company perspective, that's usually actually a good thing. I will say from a founder perspective at the early stages, a common ask from the investors is they'll say, hey, let's have a three-member board, two common, one preferred, but one of the common should be, is going to have to be whoever the CEO is at, at that moment. And that is the slippery slope towards founders losing control of the board. So as a founder, you want to be careful about that. Because if you, for whatever reason, cease to be CEO, it's a black box who's going to be in that seat going forward. But as things go later on, it's often the case that there'll be one or more investors, and then maybe even they'll want an independent board member. And there's a concern. A lot of times investors say, okay, so we'll have two investor members and one independent and one or two common, and you're going to be As a founder, hey, I want I want a majority of the board, so I want four common investors to say that's too big a board. And a lot of people just don't know that you can have a board seat with multiple votes, so Mm. you can have control over the board with one person in that controlling seat. I wouldn't say it's common, but I've certainly done it. So it's it's a tool to keep in mind from an, an investor perspective. You don't necessarily have to have the most board seats to get what you want as a preferred board member. One thing you can have are preferred board veto rights. You can have a set of major things that require preferred board approval to do. And that way, at least you won't have common board members. Even if they control the board, they won't be able to do anything on their own. The major things would require your say-so. You always have to think when you're thinking control, this offensive control, I call it offensive control and defensive control, right? The ability, offensive control, is the ability to make something happen. And the defensive control is like a veto right. I think investors' best arguments usually, until they're a majority, is for veto rights as opposed to offensive control, being able to take over the company. When they're in a majority, then it's a different story. But there are ways to kind to give some, everyone at least some of what they want, which is often the right solution, though not, not always.
0: So how do you roll out the mechanics on that? Is it just through like shares or, or how do you control the board with one seat? What Mechanically, from a, a legal perspective,
1: how do you set that up? It's assuming you're the standard issue Delaware corporation. It's your certificate <laughs> of incorporation has to say there's this one board seat that gets X number of votes mm. um, and that's where it's housed. It's not done through shares.
0: Okay, so in your articles. Great. And then, you know, with that, how can business owners use their budgets just to work with the board Represent uh, regulatory issues. Like, what have you seen?
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and it's important. It's important. All spend, obviously, in, in growth stage. All spend is important. You want to. Lo- you want to spend money on legal wisely. I've seen it used too little and too much to ill effect more often than I'd like to say. But. What I would say is, first thing first, I'm assuming here you're not you're not in healthcare, you're not in a regulated industry. If, if you're in a seriously regulated industry, you have to expect to spend a lot of money on legal and have somebody in-house probably pretty early. That's just the way life is. Standard issue. Standard issue, A, B, post A, B, C stage company. But for you have in-house counsel. I, I like to talk in the fifty to hundred thousand dollars for yeah. getting through a year of routineish legal particularly for enterprise where you're where you're negotiating a lot of contracts and like if you're a consumer, it's a little different and the costs go up more later than at the beginning. But if you're if you particularly in the enterprise world, I would say fifty to hundred thousand. And and that doesn't include investment rounds, a real investment round, your series B, your series C are gonna cost extra money. The rule of thumb I like with that is usually your investors are gonna want to do have you reimburse them for their legal fees for the round? I tell clients budget one uh, one point five x what the investor asks for, and and the reason is that is, is twofold. One, the company incurs more costs than the investor. Just, they draft do the initial drafts. They have to do all the filings. There's just a number, a lot more work on the company side. But the other thing is the amount the investor asks is a signal about how hard they're going to drive you in the round. <laughs> so if an investor is asking for thirty k at a series B, it's not going to be that huge a deal. You but I would budget forty five. But if the investor is asking for a hundred thousand, well. Then I then seriously think about the investor, but but I would expect to spend a lot of money on that route.
0: Okay. Perfect. So so uh one point five X times what the, the investors asked for. But rule of thumb as I say thumb to the sun estimate around fifty to hundred thousand yeah. if you're in the BDC yeah. range or you're in a growth company. That's about what you should budget just to address regulatory issues. This is good. This is tactical stuff that people can do. You know, and finally a third thing we got we gotta get the the three things. Late stage IPO. When's the right time to introduce liquidity programs when you're is it this stage or, or others?
1: Well normal liquidity programs usually you want to wait until late stage because there's cost to it. It, it. It's usually not worth it in a formal sense at earlier stages. I want to. I'll, I'll mention something about earlier stages in a minute. But when you're at the later stages, it's a good time because if you do, because you're going to have to do something like probably a tender offer, which is a formal system where you have to make disclosures and you have to keep offers open for a certain period of time. You might have to file things. It's it's not a cheap process. And by the way, as I said, disclosures. So you're you're giving out financials and things like that. That early stage companies, even though under an NDA don't like doing so this is this is a good time to do it it has to be done correctly or you can get sued and you can get sued in a lot of ways there's a lot of there's a lot of regulation around this because as I said you have if done correctly you have to do certain types of disclosures and the like but also at the same time let's say it's a company buyback is the form of a liquidity event there's potential liability are you going to do a company buyback right before the company's going to file for an IPO no right before the company's going to be sold off no It depending on what's going on the major events in the company that might be secret you can can even do one of these events, or you have to at least check with counsel before you do. Companies deal with employee transfers of, of equity in different ways. Some have blanket transfer restrictions, say no one can sell without board consent. Some rely on a right of first refusal in a, on the part of the company, which is great and all, but let's say you've gotten an LOI for an acquisition and you have a, some employees who want to sell their stock and find some buyer and you don't, really don't want them to sell to that buyer. Can you, as a company, exercise that right of first refusal? It's kind of hard, right? Because this acquisition is going to happen and you don't want to get sued. From a company perspective, the right of first refusal isn't necessarily enough. The other thing to keep in mind in the late stages is if too many people are selling off their stock to other people, you could end up with investors you don't want, A. And B, let's say some early stage employees have 100,000 shares and they sell to 10 or 15 different people. You could end up going over a threshold where your private company suddenly has to become an SEC reporting company and have all that expensive administrative hassle of very much like a public company before an IPO. That's something you want to avoid. That's, you know, blanket transfer restrictions probably are the best way to avoid that. Um, Even though... I do sympathize with employees who hate them. So I, I kind of go both ways there. Uh, from an investor perspective, I definitely would push for blanket transfer restrictions. For, uh, All
0: right. Great. Uh, so if you're an investor, blanket transfer yeah. Rescri- uh, oh, yeah. restrictions. Yeah. Throw them in there. Not
1: for yourself. You can no. usually market, not for investors, just for, <laughs>
0: just for everybody else but me is a restriction. Everybody yeah. else a <laughs> meal.
1: But I did want to say the moment to think about liquidity is not post series C or D. The moment to think about liquidity is day one. One mm. <laughs> it absolutely as a founder day one, because the way you structure your company impacts your ability to get liquidity. You as a founder, let's say series B, you won't still own 30, 40% of the company. You want to sell off, you know, 10% of your holdings to get some, take some cash off the table. You can set up your company in a way to make that much more tax efficient, but that has to be done at day one. And, and for everyone, there are, you know, there are tax rules, QSBS being you know the big one where you can deduct up to $10 million of your gains, or depending on how things are structured, maybe more, if you set your company up correctly and maintain it the right way. But that's not something you can do three years in. That's something you do on day one. So control is important, but I should mention liquidity is the other thing. I mean, money, money matters. I mean, most people want to make money and don't want to pay as much taxes. Yeah,
0: fair, fair point. Most people. (laughs) Myself (laughs) included. Uh, So final question on, on this late stage IPO stage, in your opinion, what are some of the most important securities laws issues during this late stage that people should focus on? Yeah, where I see people trip up, where I see companies trip up is
1: not having blackout periods. So ending up in situations where they're stuck. Either they actually buy back employees or they can't buy back employee stock because they don't have blackout periods when employees can't sell. Or they, they open up sales and end up without speaking to lawyers and end up either with a situation where they... There are restrictions on sales of private securities and where they, without being a public company, and they run into foul of those rules. Or, as I said, the tender offer rules. If they're going to do it correctly, they otherwise violate tender offer rules and have, and it happens all the time. You can have a class action against you with a class of employees suing you for SEC violation.
0: Perfect. So as we wrap things up, is there any other last comments, anything else at all that you would like our listeners to know? Maybe how to contact you, anything at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of what to know, I, the big thing is... Legal stuff does matter. It matters at the beginning. It matters throughout. It's not something to spend excess money on. I realize it's not the first thing people want to spend money on. So it's something you should budget for and ask for estimates and the like. But particularly as a founder, it's your chance to have somebody who's on your side, who is the repeat player in the market. The investors don't need that side. The investors don't need, but the founders do. In terms of reaching me, our website is www.grellis.com G-R-E-L-L-A-S. I'm on LinkedIn. The firm's on LinkedIn. My uh, email's on the website, but it's dsigle at Dot .com d s i e g e l if anyone has questions you know i'm happy to do you know initial consultations i don't charge for generally and for anybody coming from the show certainly won't so i'm happy to give advice i like to talk i not just doing it here i I like to think I have useful things to say and I like to impart knowledge. So I'm in the right industry for that.
0: Well, that's absolutely perfect, man. You're a fun guy. And coming from an attorney who has been told to charge more, not really something <laughs> uh, too many attorneys here, but certainly appreciate that. So, you know, as we wrap things up, just learn about safes, convertibles and control when you're starting out, whether you're a fund or fund manager, both of those matter. And also when you're building your legal documents or a company or negotiations, whatever it is, if you're really in that foundational stage or you want to address the foundation of an investment, talk about the board and the control of the board and how is that treated and really master that budget for legal make sure that's priced in have a healthy budget david said you know 5200k on a like a standard year if you're fundraising you want to go a little bit more and then ultimately if it hasn't been obvious i'll say it right now work with experienced attorneys it's better to work with someone two inches wide and 100 miles deep than someone who's 100 miles wide and two inches deep you do these things and you too will be well in your way in your pursuit of making billions Wow. What a show. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Now, if you haven't done so already, be sure to leave a comment and review on new ideas and guests you want me to bring on for future episodes. Plus, why don't you head over to YouTube and see extra takes while you get to know our guests even better. And make sure to come back for our next episode where we dive even deeper into the people, the process, and the perspectives of both investors and founders. Until then, my friends, stay hungry, focus on your goals, and keep grinding towards your dream of making billions.